Beginning with this year's elections, voting gets a whole lot easier. Your mailbox is your ballot box. Your ballot packet comes to you in the mail. But only if you're a registered voter. If you need to register or update your address, do it today at elections.hawaii.gov. Look for your free Hawaii elections guide in the newspaper or at these locations statewide. The deadline to register for the general election is October 5th, so don't delay. Hawaii Hawaii votes by mail. Well, aloha and thank you so much for tuning in. This is Spotlight Hawaii. Today is September 23rd and uh, I'm Ran Suji, joined by Yanji Denise. And we want to, of course, thank the Office of Elections for sponsoring this conversation. I remind you that the general election is coming up, but there is still time to register. For those of you who have not already registered, you may do so by October 5th. Uh, make sure you head over to the Office of Election website for more information uh, about how to vote. And we'll certainly have more information at the end of this broadcast. But uh, Yenji, we spent the uh, the last episode talking with the governor. We're switching gears and diving into the next mayor of Honolulu and uh, the city and county, the city and county race uh, for the next mayor. That's right. The as we know, of course, Kirk Caldwell, uh, his term is coming to an end, and we've seen just the power that the mayor has. We always knew that this office was important, but in the age of coronavirus, it is uh, your local government is more important than ever. And so we've invited Rick Blangiardi and Keith Amamia to join us this morning. They will be taking your questions, so start writing those in the comments. Before we get to them, though, let's take a look at a little more about their backgrounds. Two political newcomers each hope to take the helm at Honolulu Hale. Rick Blangiardi led primary night with just over 25% of the vote. He grew up in Boston and moved to Hawaii in 1965 when his father was transferred to Pearl Harbor. Blangiardi is a graduate of Springfield College with a master's degree from UH Manoa, where he also played and coached football. He's had a successful career as a television executive on the mainland and in Hawaii, most notably as the general manager of Hawaii News Now. Keith Amamiya Gardner just over 20% of the primary vote. Born and raised on Oahu, Amamiya is a Punahou School, UH Manoa, and UH Law School graduate. He left his position as senior vice president of Island Holdings to run for office and is perhaps best known for the 12 years he worked as the executive director of the Hawaii High School Athletics Association. He's also served on the board of Aloha Stadium, the Honolulu Police Commission, and the State Board of Education. And so we welcome Rick Blangiardi and Keith Amamiya with us this morning. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for being here. First off, we want to start with the basics. Tell us a little bit about why you're running for office. Keith, let's start with you. Well, thank you, Yunji and Ryan, for the opportunity. I was born and raised in Oahu, and Oahu is my home, and I plan to live here for the rest of my life along with my family. I'm an attorney by trade, but my entire career has been centered around public service. As the executive director of the Hawaii High School Athletic Association, I had the opportunity to work with thousands of our youth and meet thousands of working class families in every community all across Oahu. They're the reason I'm running for mayor, to provide them with a fighting chance to survive and enjoy the Oahu that we know and love. As mayor, I'll focus on our COVID recovery, helping our struggling families and small businesses, building more affordable housing, and reducing homelessness. This will be a tremendous challenge, but I know if we work together, we can build a better and stronger Oahu for all of us, especially our younger generations. Mahalo. Okay, thank you so much. And Rick, let's go to you. Why are you seeking this office? Well, 
I think for openness, we're living in a time that none of us really could have imagined actually not too many months ago. So we're both applying for a job that's going to be determined by voters from our island. The challenges we're facing from the impact of COVID-19 become more difficult every day as families and businesses struggle to survive. So I've always believed that in evaluating a candidate for any key leadership position, especially something in this circumstance, the focus should really be on what is needed and not who. It's not just experience that counts, but it's the kind of success, successful experience that somebody's had. So I don't know what more I could have done over all these years in leadership roles, both in the private sector and, and, and running television stations and what we've done and in our community's work. And so I come from a place of deep love and passion for my home uh, and, and under the circumstances, all the issues facing us, that's, that's my desire, that's my sense of responsibility, and that's my challenge to lead during a time like this. Thank you. All right, well, we're gonna get right into it with some of the questions, of course, that uh, we have, as well as we encourage those tuning in to also uh, type in your questions as we'll bring in some of these audience questions. We're gonna first start off, of course, with something that's very top of mind, uh, and that's the uh, city's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Rick, we're going to start off with you first. I uh, want to talk and address something that recently happened. Of course, yesterday, Kirk Caldwell uh, announcing his tiered approach to battling the pandemic and opening and reopening uh, the city and county of Honolulu. Uh, him even saying that this plan could extend well into next year when a vaccine uh, is readily available. That would mean that the new mayor would essentially be sort of carrying out sort of this plan that they've outlined. Uh, based on what you saw yesterday and sort of this tiered approach, is that something that you agree with the mayor? And, and would you continue to move forward with the plan that they have uh, being implemented? Well, I think for some time now, as we've gotten close to actually becoming mayor, you know, I've anticipated that we're going to get a handoff of some kind and the decisions that are being made. We're still three months out in front. And not like everybody else, I just watched yesterday and listened and learned. Uh, I I want to work with whatever gets assigned. I've made it a practice not to second guess Kirk. You know they're they're in a position now where they're trying to make the best decisions they can make. I've had some issues about the communication. This plan is put in place. And if in fact it carries into 2020, 2021, I'm sorry. Then we're going to do everything we can to make it even better and and to try to get us back and as strong and as thriving as possible uh, with everything and anything the mayor's office can do to assist. Uh, Keith, your response, do you agree with sort of the approach and the tiered system that was set up in place? And if you are elected, uh, would you continue on with what has been established yesterday? Well, I think, I think it's better uh, than, than what was done in the past. It, it provides more specific, clear guidelines than uh, what was the case in, uh, beforehand. Um, a lot of people were frustrated and, and confused and, and just we're left in limbo as to when the economy is going to reopen or when businesses will reopen, when they'll be able to go back to the parks and beaches. At least this gives uh, some metrics and data uh, that we can look towards and, and be able to plan our lives accordingly, especially businesses. I've spoken to a lot of small businesses and restaurants and they've been frustrated about the past procedures because they were given less than 24 hours to close their restaurants in some cases. Uh, they were given uh, less than 48 hours uh, notice to reopen their restaurants or businesses. And as you know, uh, it's not easy. You just can't snap your finger and, and reopen a business. You have to order the food. You have to hire your uh, workers or make sure that you have staffing. Uh, so this is a start. Uh, my, but my concern is that it's um, a four-tiered system and it may take up to four weeks to 
get as close as possible to reopen the economy fully. And I don't know if our small businesses and, and restaurants and, and other uh, types of establishments can afford to wait that long. Yeah, well, I, I want to agree with that. Can I just say something? Of, of real course. concern. Of real concern is I saw that University of Hawaii report where they've estimated over a thousand small businesses have closed, but another twenty are hang twenty thousand are hanging in the balance. I mean that is one of the scariest statistics I've come across, and I think we've all come across various statistics. But we really have to. It's one thing I want to say is operate with great urgency, and that would be from day one. We'll see what gets done over the ninety plus days, but I want to really emphasize that 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 has to be a real top priority for us. Well, to that end, let's bring in Cindy's question here. Uh, Keith, we'll start with your answer and then we'll ask Rick the same question. This is Cindy Fujiwara says, how long do you, would you continue to have businesses like bars keep closed? Do you believe these lockdowns are in step with the constitution? There are, um, there's a vocal minority here in Hawaii that has been holding protests in front of the governor's office. And beyond that, there are a lot of people who feel like these are too restrictive. Maybe they're not out there protesting, but they have some reservations. Uh, what's your answer to Cindy, Keith? So uh, I don't know if these restrictions are unconstitutional. I mean, the health and safety of our communities are paramount. And so uh, whatever it takes to ensure that uh, is presumably constitutional. I mean, we can't uh, have constitutional provisions override the health and safety of our communities. Uh, now, in terms of when we reopen bars and, and fitness centers and, and other establishments that, that have been hit hard by this uh, COVID-19 restrictions, uh, I go back to data, science, uh, best practices. I mean, let's let's consult with our uh, healthcare professionals. Let's consult with epidemiologists and the like. Um, I've spoken to many of them, and um, it's good that we're finally using data. Uh, you know, we have to be data driven. I mean, that's the problem uh, with with um, our president, frankly, that that he doesn't seem to be using science and data, and that's why the COVID nineteen response. Uh, and the COVID-19 cases across our country and are in disarray. Let, let's rely on data and science. Rick, what would you say to Cindy? Well, I think you know, part of what's going on is we're trying to play catch up because we sort of missed the boat on our testing and pre-testing. And, and so now they're trying to implement as many things as we possibly can to prevent further spread. So I, I agree with science. We, we need to you know use science and common sense. I think the bar closings were an overreach to be very honest with you. And I think that, you know, we're gonna to have to really challenge our people and not necessarily be giving them citations to try to do the things that we know at least now that we can best do with respect to social distancing, with respect to wearing masks and clean, you know, washing our hands and those kinds of things under these circumstances. And I, I was surprised that the bars are gonna be closed down to the end of December. And I understand there have been problem areas and that's where I think we could put our efforts to monitor, um, but I wouldn't be so restrictive to just put a blanket approach on it and shut everything down. I want to also talk about sort of the punishment uh, that, you know, comes with sort of breaking these COVID restrictions that have been put up in place. Uh, we've seen, you know, a number of citations that are being handed out as law enforcement tries to really try to make sure that what has what is in the order is, is basically upheld. Uh, we'll start off with you, Rick, with this question. Uh, what do you feel in terms of the stance on restrictions and enforcement of this order? And, and to what degree should the city and HPD play a role in making sure that those who are breaking these orders uh, are punished? Well, you know, we'll go through a phenomenal experience of trying to enforce, if you will, behavior modification, you know, in a way that we all know, as I just said, and everybody said it repeatedly, we need to do, we need to adhere for our own, for our own sake. And so in that regard, uh, 
I know that the police department was used initially to warn people and it was friendly and everything, but people still weren't listening. And then they went to citations and I was on a call the other day. I was told, I think there was something more than 45,000 citations being uh, that had been given out. And I don't even know the consequence of that. I mean, that's problematic in its own way. So I, I kind of come back to it again. We're an island people. We are a community. We have been benefited. We have benefited from really, quite honestly, the very low incidence of this disease. And for that matter, including this morbidity rate. And I don't want to be cavalier about how many people have died. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to really go back into ourselves if we want life to come back. And I've seen really good examples of it in a lot of places. I'm encouraged by it. But somehow, some way, we just have to get able to reach people. That we've got to self-monitor here. We've got to, we've got to be able to do these things to get us back. It's really incumbent upon all of us in a way that that's never been true before. Uh, Keith, your, your response to punishment, and, and do you think that people uh, should be held accountable for those who break the, these orders? Well, first, in terms of the COVID deaths, I mean, obviously one death is too many and, and we need to do whatever we can to, to eliminate the deaths and, and curb the spread of COVID-19. In terms of the restrictions and the enforcement of the restrictions, um, uh, first, I, I thought it was ill-advised, if, if not silly, that only one person from a family could go to a park or beach. Um, you know, you have uh, your family members living with you in one household under one roof. Uh, and so why can't you go to the beach and, or a park together? Uh, I'm glad that rule has, has since been modified to a certain extent. In terms of the enforcement and issuance of 40,000 plus tickets, uh, that seems to me excessive. Uh, it's, it's frankly an ill-advised use of our police officer's time. It's an ill-advised use of CARES Act money for overtime. Uh, that money should instead be spent on working class families and small businesses who need the money badly. And uh, we, we should also uh, divert our police officers to the job that they we're entrusting them to do. And that's to uh, prevent and solve uh, much more serious crimes than uh, a stay at home citation violation. Let's switch gears now a little bit to the economy. Um, Keith, we'll start with you. What do you think about this idea of resort bubbles? I know they're exploring it um, on the neighbor islands probably a little bit more rapidly than here on Oahu, but is it something that you would support? I would support anything that could kickstart our tourism economy. Uh, I suppose resort bubbles are a start, but I prefer a, a wider scale resumption of tourism if possible. I mean, obviously the health, safety, and welfare of our residents uh, against COVID-19 is paramount. But if we come together and, and come up with some guidelines such as pre-travel testing, post-travel testing and monitoring, uh, we need to reopen the economy. Resort bubbles are just a start, but we need to open tourism on a uh, wider scale sooner because our economy is depending on it. Rick, what's your take on the resort bubble, bubble concept? We in any conversation, we've got to talk about people's safety. But we need to be as innovative as possible and as wide, I think, as, as broad in our thinking as possible. And, you know, and so in that regard, we need to really get our tourism open. If, if bubbles are part of it, if strategic marketing to places that have low incidence is, is a possibility, I think it's not just one thing. I think we just have to understand how important tourism is, how many jobs are involved, and what it means and doing, doing everything we possibly can. And that involves, you know, talking about the testing, the pre-testing on arrival, contact tracing, whatever else we can possibly do to um, to, to get us going again. I, you know, I, I'm 
I'm not so sure everything I've been hearing about, you know, a vaccine, just wait for a vaccine, if that's going to be the panacea. I think that, you know, in and of itself, um, we just got to get really user friendly on how we're able to welcome people, what we do. And I think it's time for great innovation and cooperation at all, all levels of the hotels, the management, the ownership, et cetera, and, and everybody here. I want to bring in a viewer question to this uh, topic still somewhat of uh, opening these resort bubbles and tourism again. Heidi's asking, we need to diversify our economy. What are your plans to do this? Uh, and maybe a broader question in general with looking towards the city budget and the operating expenses and the money that the city will be losing because of the pandemic. Uh, what are sort of your plans for the overall economy of the city and county, the resources that has to provide? And, and what are some of your plans to maybe diversify it specifically for Heidi's question? Rick, we'll start off with you. Yeah, well, diversifying our economy has been talked about for many, many years. And clearly, there are, there, there are real challenges with doing it in this circumstance from the standpoint of what's been proposed, although I do believe and some of the things we may be able to do technically. I, I really want to look at what are the things we're doing, doing well that we can build on first and foremost. We know that our construction sector is going well. Uh, I really want to look at possibility and alignment with the military. You know, we have a real benefit here. We have the second largest military presence in the country next to Washington, D.C. And with PACOM, we've got a lot of really influential political uh, government leaders, military leaders that could possibly help us. There's certainly a lot of things that could happen that way. I want to look at the University of Hawaii from the standpoint of our junior college system, not so much in pursuit of AA degrees, but what we can do to kind of reskill our workforce because we know that not all those jobs are going to come back and we don't want people leaving the state. And then you get into all of the other areas, whether we're talking about things that are happening in energy, certainly, you know, things that we could possibly do in agriculture. I'm actually fascinated with the fact that Amazon will be in here as a global distributor and player with great resources to just possibly we might be able to do something that really can create jobs, the products and things that we can ship because of Hawaii's appeal. But I, I you know, I, I'm a big fan of technology. Uh, I want to be realistic. I've heard a lot of stuff said by that. I'm really proud of what we've created at Hawaii News Now in, in the last 10 years, which really was a 21st century multimedia company. I think that this disease has exposed systemically how far behind we are in modernizing our city. And so, I don't know to the extent we can make it a smart city, but there has to be a real emphasis in that. So I, uh, that's that's what I would look at in, in that technical sector, along with those other alignments that help stimulate what we're doing and build on some of the successes in our real needs. Uh, Keith, your response to Heidi's question here about diversifying our economy. Well, diversifying our economy is something we've spoken about for decades and decades, and uh, we finally need to get it done. Uh, we need change. We need uh, a new leadership, we need political will to finally diversify our economy. I mean, if we're not gonna diversify it now, we never will. I mean, it's clear that we were far over-reliant on tourism for far too long, and COVID-19 has exposed that. Uh, my, uh, the, my Oahu recovery plan outlines how to diversify the economy. Uh, my plan is a roadmap on how to bring us out of COVID-19 and make us better and stronger than ever. It focuses on healthy people, healthy economy, and a healthy environment. In terms of specifically diversifying the economy, we need to look at industries like agriculture, aquaculture, renewable energy, healthcare, and technology. Uh, technology in particular is an important field that we should focus more of our efforts on because it can help the city uh, in terms of uh, any budget shortfalls and, and how to close the gap uh, in, in terms of the, the shortfalls that we may be anticipating. Uh, 
technology will make city government work faster, cheaper, and more efficiently. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of back and forth here, questioning both of your leadership styles. I wonder, uh, Keith, we'll start with you. You know, obviously, you both have your best intentions for the city. You both have very different ideas about how we get there. But what do you think is the biggest difference between you and your opponent when it comes to how you would lead? Well, my leadership style is focused on, on the way I've always led throughout my career. That's through listening, learning, collaborating, bringing key stakeholders to the table far before an issue arises and far before a proposal is made. I think it's important to have meaningful dialogue and make sure everyone's included. Uh, that's uh, fallen in short supply in government lately. That's why a lot of people have mistrust of government and that's one of my priorities. It's to restore trust in government. Uh, when I uh, was the head of the Hawaii High School Athletic Association, I mentioned that I had the opportunity to visit every community across Oahu and got to know, know the people in every community very well. I got to know the issues very well. And that's going to be extremely important uh, for the next mayor because uh, he'll have to hit the ground running from day one. And knowledge of the community, knowing who to tap in every community, who to reach out to, uh, that's paramount in, in order to ensure that our city runs as best as possible. Rick, tell us about your leadership style and how it might differ from Keith's. Well, leadership to me has always been situational. I've been in many, many different situations. So really, I think the fundamental difference is that depth of experience and, and the results-oriented approach where I've been. I wanna make this really clear because I've, I've heard some things, you know, you could just look around. I've worked in this town openly for so many years. There are hundreds of people and thousands of businesses I've worked with, and I've always been kind of rooted in my days in coaching. I'm, I'm a, a team builder. I'm a collaborator. I just try to inspire performance. That's how we've been able to build upon success out of adversity and overcome the odds. Uh, so I'm, I take some real pride in, in ability to really pick good people, hire really good people, um, had a lot of experience with turning failing organizations around. So, you know, I, I just think over the last 50 years, the challenges that I had, I've had and the leadership roles I've been in, which have been highly visible in some cases and pretty dramatic in others, where we've always made a positive difference. And look, my track record stands, I, I have never even had a grievance uh, or, or anything else has come up in our employee dealing. So I'm, I'm very much a team builder and a collaborator problem solver, make things happen. We want to also allow you folks the opportunity to ask uh, each other questions. And uh, we're getting to that point right now where we are going to uh, allow each of you to ask one question to each other. And uh, I believe we are going to be starting with, uh, Keith will be asking the first question. Oh, okay. So- That was um, actually supposed to be the other way, but- I'm okay. sorry. <laughs> My we gave them uh, gave them some guidelines, so we want to make sure that we do stick to that. Sorry about that. Rick was Rick's going to go first? first on that. Okay. All, right. All, right. All right. So Keith, if you're elected, I will work. You know, I if, if I'm elected, I will work with everyone, regardless of political party affiliation. This is a nonpartisan race, but you insist on making partisan by constantly emphasizing your political party. How is this about politics as usual? Is this a signal that you will only hire Democrats or work with Democrats? Thank you. Uh, of course not. Uh, throughout my career, I've worked with everybody, whether it's Democrats, Republicans, independents, or, or any other party. And I'll continue to do that as mayor. Uh, the fact that I mentioned my Democratic Party roots is because 
uh, people ask that all the time, even though it's a non-party race. I mean, people know uh, generally which party you're affiliated with. So when asked, I tell them I'm a member of the De Democratic Party. I believe in the Democratic Party ideals, um, such as fairness, fighting for the underdog, fighting for the working class people, uh, ensuring that there's equality, uh, fighting against uh, special interests and the like. And so uh, I'll continue to do that uh, throughout my, as I've said, throughout my career, and I'll continue to work that uh, way as mayor. Okay, but I just tend to think, since I've talked to a lot of Democrats, a lot of Democrats are tired of this party politics. There's a reason why they made the mayor's office nonpartisan back in 92. And so to the essence of what I asked you, it's really ability, and what we just got done answering, our ability to work with all kinds of people. And so that's why I've had really taken an exception to making this a partisan race, because we're both going to be challenged at being able to do that to the max. Well, I'll just stand by my record throughout my career. I've been able to work with people from all walks of life, from all communities, from uh, all ethnic groups, all ages, um, and, and I'll continue to do that as mayor. And Keith, your question uh, for Rick right now? So my question to Rick is that, uh, you know, he he's a former coach, and so he knows very well the importance of having a game plan. Uh, I've set forth detailed plans including my housing for all plan to address our affordable housing shortage and my Oahu recovery plan that seeks to outline and describe how we're going to get out of this COVID-19 crisis and move forward. Uh, yet throughout this campaign, Rick hasn't really come up with any plans. And I think mentioned that uh, it's too early to predetermine any plans. So my question to Rick is, do you have any plans uh, and if you do, is it the Bill 7 housing plan that you've explained before? And how is that a housing plan? And how is it going to reduce our affordable housing here on Oahu? Okay, well, first of all, this is a very fluid situation. And, you know, we've been impacted by COVID-19 now for some six months. And, you know, by the month, by the day, really, you know, you're never really sure what's going to happen and what's going on. We've been working on a lot of framework for plans. Bill 7 is something I happen to really like. I happen to think that uh, Marshall Hung and Mel Kaneshige are some of the brightest guys I've ever met in development. They enjoy great reputations of respect in this community. And they had a, they've had a plan put in place that was approved unanimously by the city council and signed by the mayor over a year ago as a pilot test program on affordable rentals that, takes, that goes right at the heart of where our real crisis is on our housing. If you look at the projections on that, but look, to think we don't have plans is is really um and i'm not calling you up every day talking about what we're going to do we i have really a great group of people around me we've got a real good framework on plans but we're trying to stay fluid understand what's happening where that handoff is going to be and i have a lot of confidence in what we're doing i actually think i would challenge and say you have a plan can you execute this job is going to come down to execution and so i have a really strong belief that when we get in there and we understand what the handoff is. Look, just stop and think. Three months ago, just three months ago, that's only half the time we've been under the impact of COVID. How much has changed in three months? And we're still three months out in front of a job. So yes, we're developing framework on all the major issues. Uh, issues. But I'm not gonna sit there and say, we were so smart, here's our plan. We wrote it six months ago, and this is the way, the truth, and the light. It's not gonna happen. So politicians always have plans. Where it falls down is their ability to execute. And on that, I take a lot of pride as a leader and an ability to make plans and execute plans. So that's where I'm coming from. 
Keith, so, I want to give you a chance to respond to that. Sure. I mean, I'm familiar with Bill 7 as well. And I, I've spoken to Marshall Hung, one of the architects of Bill 7. And he'll be the first to tell you that it's not a housing plan. It's a part of a housing plan, a small part. Uh, Marshall will tell you that uh, Bill 7 it was only intended to build approximately 500 units a year. That'll take decades to address our affordable housing shortage. So that's not really a plan. He'll also tell you that uh, the bill was passed a year ago and only one permit application has been approved and zero housing units have been built as of uh, today. And so again, you know, that, that's not a plan. And I'll just finish by saying that we've seen the problem with not having plans in Washington DC with our president and COVID-19 recovery and how he's handled it. And it's been disastrous. I mean, we, I understand, I'll be the first to say, plans are fluid, plans are subject to change, but the voters deserve to know what the game plan is to take our city out of this pandemic that we're facing right now. Well, look, leadership is situational, as I've said. Solutions are ever-changing. It's not just Bill 7. That's one of the things. I've met with a number of the top developers in this town. We've had discussions with a lot of different people. This is going to take a lot more than a single plan and a lot of other people. And you're wrong about the one permit. I believe it's up to like 17 now. But that's neither here nor there. It's going to, this is a multi-pronged approach to what we need to do. But I'm really interested in building affordable rental units. Look, our demographics have shifted. Interesting. We now live in a place where 50% of the people live paycheck to paycheck. Many of those people can't even afford to buy a car. We need to be able to produce housing that speaks to that and addresses that. And that's going to be a multi-tiered approach. There's a lot of development possibilities. There's a lot of building we have to do. The projection is by 2025, we're going to have 65,000 units needed of which about 23, 24,000 of those are gonna be in affordable rentals. That's where the focus is gonna be. It's not just one simple plan. It's gonna take a lot of collaboration with the private sector, with the state, with the federal government, and everything else we can possibly bring together. We wanna to stay on this sort of topic and segue into uh, housing and just development overall. You know, there are uh, some concerns that the urban core is becoming overdeveloped and too developed. And of course there is, both of you have addressed the need for more affordable housing and the availability of that. Uh, do you support uh, further development in the urban core? And would you be in favor of extending the building height limit to take to allow for taller buildings to uh, be constructed here in the urban core to make way for more housing? Uh, your thoughts, Rick, we'll start with you on this uh, development of the urban core and the height restrictions on buildings and increasing that for things like affordable housing. Well, I actually think there's a lot of work that could be done in the urban core. I think we need to do that from the standpoint of accessibility and feasibility, if you will, uh, for the kinds of people we have in our population. So uh, there, there are slated, as you know, a number of high-rise projects. That's one kind of building. And quite honestly, um, I don't know how this is going to go over, but I'm not really sure I like going over to 400 feet. Uh, that, that does create some efficiencies, but also creates a lot of problems. But I really like the idea. I go back to Bill 7 because it's not government subsidy. You know, there's some 6,500 parcels of land in our city here that are owned by individuals that out of that 2,400 are in ghetto-like conditions. Part of the stimulation not only creating housing and why I like that bill is it starts to eliminate that blight on our city. So I think urban core development, if you look at what the rail is all about and TOD and everything else that has to happen, just take the Dillingham corridor alone. I saw a presentation from Kamehameha Schools before I left Hawaii News Now on Kapalama 2040, 20, 2045, just 25 years from now, you wouldn't even recognize the place. 
So I, I, I think we can do much more in the urban core. I think we need to. I'm not into urban sprawl. We don't want to take any more ag land and create housing on it. We don't have to. Uh, Keith, your response to the same question. Sure. Again, my housing for all plan addresses all of those questions that, that were asked, but, but I'll answer uh, them right now. Uh, I'm in favor of keeping the country country and that if we build more housing, it should be focused in the urban core. Of course, it needs to be done smartly. It needs to be done with input from the community and other people. Uh, but uh, that's the logical place to have more housing uh, completed. It's already urbanized, so to speak. And so uh, I, I, in many cases, it'll create a better community. Uh, there's a lot of older housing that frankly needs to be torn down or, or older warehouses or commercial buildings uh, that uh, need to be uh, demolished and, and removed anyway. So let's focus on construction in the urban core in terms of building heights. Uh, it depends on the location. Um, you know, I, I'm open to increasing the building heights, but there's a lot of other factors that come into play to determine whether or not to increase the building heights. Uh, I will add that uh, if we build more housing in the urban core, let's pivot away from luxury development and focus on more uh, housing for affordable units and for working class families. I want to bring in the audience here at 11 o'clock. Yvonne uh, Bolton Eugenio says, rails the elephant in the room. Please address your plans for the rail going forward. We've talked to you individually about rail. I know people can find out your, uh, more about rail on your websites, but um, not only your plan for rail going forward, but also once the rail system is up and running, how should the city you know, maintain and manage this? This is going to be quite a bit of cost in a time when we don't have a lot of money. Keith, we'll start with you. Well, from the beginning, I've always been in support of rail and its completion all the way to Alamana. I'll preface that with saying that I'm as frustrated and upset as everyone about rail from the pre-planning stages up to the present. Uh, as mayor, I will take a close look and a watchful eye on the project to make sure that the problems in the past don't happen anymore. But uh, as I've said before, rail does need to be completed to Ala Moana for many reasons. Number one, the federal government has already given an $800 million subsidy for the rail project contingent upon completion to Ala Moana. Uh, and there's a chance for the federal government to give $700 million more uh, towards the construction of the rail project. Uh, rail is an important part of a multi-modal multi transportation network. Uh, the people from Leeward, Oahu uh, need alternate modes of transportation to get into town besides the bus and cars. Uh, it's simply uh, pre-COVID uh, taking too long to get into town. It's too expensive to have a car, to pay for gas, to pay for parking. We need to provide another viable option for people on that side of the island who work in town, whether it's downtown uh, or, or Waikiki. Okay, Rick, same question for you. Well, I also have always been in support of rail in completing the project to Alamoana. But what I've not been in support of is making promises to build to Alamoana when we have no solid idea on how much it's going to cost or how we're going to pay for it as a result of the tremendous financial impact of COVID-19. That's the question I began to raise after we were shut down for several months. So to make a promise without that information is not something I'm willing to do just to get elected. Our people need our leaders to be honest and transparent, especially about this project. So if we're honest and transparent, I believe we can begin building trust in our government again, which is something that's really needed. So instead of arguing about whether we should stop it at Middle Street or somewhere before El Moana or even 
going all the way to Almuana. We all need to be demanding honest accounting on how much it's going to cost and how we're going to pay for it. I mean, look at what's happened this week. The director is now out. So since the onset of COVID, I've said that our financial reality should determine the future of rail, not the political ambitions of politicians. And I want to say one other thing. I, I, I've made a comment before it's about the $800 million in the forfeiture, perhaps, if we can't some way. This, it's all done before a global pandemic and the impact that we've had here. Of being less concerned about that, I'm more concerned about regaining trust with the FTA, about why they're not releasing that $744 million and other monies that we're going to need. As we just saw as evidence, you know, on the P3 that came in, it was a $600 million increase over that, not the least of which is the projections for this year's shortfall from GT, another $400 million. There's a billion dollars. And where is that going to come from? So one of the agreements that I've made is I will fight for everything we possibly can do. I've not flip-flopped on rail. It's been my position all along. But we've been in the middle of a pandemic that's impacted us in ways we could even dream, as I said in my opening today. So this is going to be more about restoring trust. We need public confidence. And we also need to restore public trust at the federal level, especially with the FTA. And one last thing on the FTA. They are under siege right now. Public transit on the mainland is in a debt spiral. In the top 36 cities, the debt that's being accumulated by the day is in the, well, in the aggregate is in the billions and billions of dollars. Again, unprecedented. So where are we? Where are we in line with that? And how can we establish the trust and get those monies we need? And I'm going to fight for everything we possibly can get. Okay. okay. I just, uh, Ryan, I just want to add that uh, throughout the primary election, uh, Rick did mention about pausing rail at, at Middle Street. And so he is doing a bit of a flip-flop here in saying that now he wants it completed to Alamoana. Uh, but I'll, let me let me say that I do agree with him that we, we can't afford any more cost overruns and overburden the taxpayers with this gigantic project. But the danger of pausing at Middle Street at this point uh, is enormous. Uh, we remember, some of you, that the last time we paused rail was when former Governor Ben Cayetano filed a lawsuit to halt the rail project. The project halted for about 13 months and by many estimates, it cost uh, the project an additional $130 million in, in added costs because of the delay. We simply can't afford to pause the rail project and, and increase the costs uh, overall. I agree. Let me just say, this is about fiscal responsibility to the max for the next mayor, right? And you know, from that standpoint, it was not a flip-flop. I just alluded to the fact, and this is what happened in this election. Because everybody was pro-real. I was. Look at the literature we produced day one. I've done editorials in the past. I've been very supportive of this project and everything that it means, not just in transit, but in TOD and all the other aspects as far as building Oahu's communities for the future. But that said, asking the question about, about, about the financials of this, you know, as soon as I began to raise that, where is that going to come from, especially with the Shurgeon GT? Everybody said, well, would you stop it? And right away, would it be Middle Street? I never really said clearly at Middle Street. That would seem to be offered. Since that time, in my campaign efforts, we've done a lot of homework on this. I've talked to a lot of people, and I believe we can get further way beyond it. Middle Street probably wouldn't be a good place. That was not a recommendation for me. It was, it was a suggestion from the media. So at the end of the day, I want to do the most prudent thing we possibly can and take rail as far as we can because it's that important to the future of this for our island. Uh, we want to switch gears here as our time is wrapping up and we still have a few other topics that we want to cover. Uh, recently, a study produced by the University of Hawaii predicts that as much as 40% of Hawaii's beaches 
uh, could be lost uh, by the year 2050 because of sea level rises. As mayor, maybe what initiatives would you sort of implement to help slow down this rate and help to protect some of these beaches on Oahu? Rip, uh, excuse me, Keith, we'll start with you. Sure. Um, as I've said throughout this campaign, COVID-19 is the crisis of the moment, but climate change is the crisis of our lifetime. Uh, climate change frightens me, the impacts of it terrify me, and uh, we need to act on climate change now. I've consistently said that one of the first acts as mayor is to enact and enforce a climate action plan. The current city administration is working on a climate action plan. I'm committed to enforcing it and make sure that we address climate change as soon as possible. A lot of us uh, are older than, than our generations uh, behind us and may not be affected by climate change, but we owe it to the future generations to address climate change now. They're the ones that are gonna be left holding the bag. Like a lot of things on Oahu, we've kicked the can down the road far too much and we finally need to address climate change. In terms of the rising sea levels, uh, among other things, we need to uh, eliminate the seawalls that are being built. It's clear that seawalls well, sea further uh, exacerbate erosion along the uh, coastline. And we also need to start working with the landowners who have properties along the coastline to figure out what we're gonna do to address the fact that their properties are getting closer and closer to the ocean with each passing day. Uh, Rick, your uh, response to the same question on uh, climate change and, and the rising sea levels here. You know, I think if COVID-19 hadn't happened, it just became the Trump card, if you will, uh, in our conversations about first our priorities, climate change would have been something I would have been talking a lot about. Um, you know, one of the things I'm really proud of before I left Hawaii News now was raised three quarters of a million dollars from the private sector to produce three one-hour documentaries as a form of education, both for the people here on our island and for kids. Because honestly, if you have a conversation with an adult, that's one thing about climate change. Try talking to a child about climate change. So we have a lot of work to do. We, are, you know, we we've seen it. And we've been spared so far this year, but you know, we have a whole different vernacular now with rain bombs and and sea level rise and flooding and things that we've seen even over the last couple of years that are things we've never seen before. And as island dwellers, and just even looking around at what's happening elsewhere in the Pacific, you know, it's a really great concern. So I had the privilege of being on Mayor Caldwell's resiliency uh, team there and listened to a lot of proposals. I was really attended the mayoral summit last year that was held here on climate change. I just think from a leadership standpoint and as mayor, I want to give this every bit of focus. Hopefully, we can even do stuff with the military. There's billions and billions of dollars of construction that's going to have to take place. It's how we do it, how we do it with state issues with DLNR, how we do it with Hawaiian, Hawaiian rights. When we start talking about beachfronts and things of that nature, it's a very complicated thing. But for the survival of this place and future generations, we need to make it a real priority. Okay, we have just a few minutes left, so let's get to your closing statements. We got to as many topics as we could. We could spend hours with the both of you, but uh, let's get to one last uh, pitch to the viewers, if you will. Uh, Rick, we'll start with you. I'll just keep it short. I, I came to live here in 1965. I've been in Hawaii for the last 55 years. Everything I've done, I've tried to do to the best of my ability. We've achieved a lot of success, not only in the broadcast business that I was running, and even in this community at large, the things that I got behind and and really supported. So in that regard, at this stage of my life, what I'm looking forward to doing is just giving this job everything I have, drawing on those experiences, knowledge of my knowledge of the people here, and everything else we can possibly do. 
uh, to go with this job. There's much resource and everything else that I know about leadership for the good of this place. So it's not a complicated answer. We're doing this um, with a real sense of conviction and responsibility, unlike anything I've ever felt in my life. And so I ask humbly for your vote. I will give you my best, and I look forward to what we're going to create together. There is a tomorrow. We have to have hope. We want to build confidence, and we need to attack the future in a very positive way and get ourselves going again. Thank you. Okay, and Keith, you'll have the last word. Thank you. This is a pivotal election, and we all have a choice. We're going to have to beat COVID and bring our economy back, and it's going to take all of us. As mayor, I'll continue to do what I've always done throughout my career, find innovative solutions to complex problems and bring people together to get things done. I have the experience working with the private sector, the public sector, and the community. And I'll use that experience to create a better and stronger Oahu. Mahalo for the opportunity, and I humbly ask for your vote. All right, gentlemen, uh, Keith Amamiya, Rick Bangeri, thank you so much for joining us uh, and uh, engaging in this conversation. I think it was very insightful and uh, glad we were able to get some of our viewer questions in there as well. Uh, and uh, we thank you once again. Aloha. Right. Thank you, Yanji. Thank you. Thank you. Well, good to hear from both of them. Uh, some key differences you see it not just in the words that they that they say, Ryan, but also just in the way that they present themselves. Um, and a lot of people were writing in just about um, you know what they the even the speed at which they talked or the the body language. A lot of you very observant. One comment in there said, "What's with the eyes?" Uh, I think they see us looking to the side when we do that. We're reading your comments, <laughs> so we don't maintain eye contact the whole time because we got to look down and try to get as many of you in there as possible. But anyway, Anyway, just want to explain a little behind the scenes so that we don't look a little shifty eyed here. But we really enjoyed our conversation with them. And, uh, you know, the voters have have an interesting choice. Yeah, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes here uh, to make this program uh, happen. So that's why uh, sometimes it looks like we're looking all over the place. But yeah, I, I agree. Yanji. And, and, and it was very telling off the top when we talked about sort of their plan for the reopening of Honolulu and, and the city's latest efforts to sort of map that out with the plan that was re, you know unveiled yesterday by Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell, both saying that they will you know look at to keeping what has sort of been in place. And, and uh, Rick Bangiardi also just saying that he wouldn't question Kirk Caldwell. He knows that he's been working on this for some time. There was some concern that Keith Amamiya expressed about uh, the length and the four week process and that being detrimental to small businesses. Uh, but he also seemed to support uh, this sort of tiered metric approach with that uh, data. So uh, we'll see what happens when this next mayor, whoever it is, gets elected and how they would tackle COVID-19 moving forward. Yeah, and they also both talked about enforcement and maybe thinking that there were maybe too many citations being issued. They also both seem to indicate that they thought the bar restrictions may be a little bit too restrictive. Of course, uh, the mayor could be dealing with data that these two candidates don't have. So they, they both said that they didn't necessarily want to second guess what the mayor uh, was doing there. Um, on the issues of the urban core and height limits, it was interesting. There were some differences there. Uh, Mr. Blangiardi basically saying that he wants to keep the height limits where they are. And uh, Keith Amamiya saying that he would perhaps be open to raising those for uh, affordable housings and housing and projects that would bring uh, more housing to the urban core. So there's a key difference there. And then, of course, there is the issue of rail. Oh, and I think Ryan's frozen for just a second. <laughs>
<laughs> so I'll be here um, with you. And while I do that, uh, let me also tell you that on Friday, we're going to be shifting gears. We're going to be talking about tourism. Of course, the governor was on here saying on Monday that tourism will be uh, reopening in some limited capacity. It looks like October 15th. And so we're going to be talking with Mike McCartney of DBED and Jeff Wagner of Outrigger Hotels uh, to talk about tourism in general and what they think of the current plan uh, to bring people back when it comes to Trans-Pacific travel. And there's my partner, Ryan Glaisuji, I think. Oh no, still frozen. Okay. <laughs> well, we have taken up enough of your time and we truly appreciate it. Thank you so much for all the comments and the questions that you brought. We'll of course have the governor on next Monday. We're gonna have some representatives from the Department of Education next Wednesday. And then uh, we'll be releasing our October schedule shortly. So thank you so much for being here. Of course, we thank the Office of Elections for bringing this to you. If you have not registered to vote, time is running out. October 5th is the deadline. So get online get registered, make your voice heard. And if you missed our past conversations with uh, Keith Alamia and Rick Langiardi, you can also go back there. We have a whole Spotlight Hawaii page on the uh, paper's website. So thank you so much for being here. I'm Yanji Denise on behalf of me and Ryan Kalei Suji. We wish you a fond Wednesday and we will see you soon. Aloha.